people have opinions without being fully informed. Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. I don't care if you're a Christian, Messianic, or Hebrew roots. I want to know if your theology is biblical. Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right. If you're going to cite a source, be responsible. You know, cite your source. You're welcome, college. Hey, we're just having a conversation. There's only 36 people listening anyway, right? You can Google it. Wow, at what point does history matter? At what point does truth matter? An alien invasion. Is it biblical? Of course it is. Look, there's a way to do scholarship and a way not to do scholarship. you got to set your source. Who's your source? My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows his kid is going with the girl. And that about sums it up. What up, Angelo? Welcome to the Robin Caleb Show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, of course, Rob Manhoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? It's going well. Wow. You asked. I produced. <laughs> New intro for the 2017 season, season four. <laughs> I like it. Mike t- told me is, that is, I was that the, is that Ferris Bueller? Yes, it's okay, actually I, Simone in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Or, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. Uh, yeah, oh, no. uh, Michael told me I had to uh, make a new one of those every single year now. Like once oh, a yeah. year, got to redo it. But the nice thing is, is that even though those are all samples, I've put them all together. I've arranged them all. And so, unlike our old, our previous, uh, our previous song, uh, you know, the previous song was written by somebody else and was just stock. So I, I think you'd be hard pressed to actually hear our song somewhere else now, because it's you know fully produced. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, hey, what up in wow. Shalom to everybody out there, and uh, what up in Shalom to everybody in the chat room? We got a light group today, but that's because I forgot to put out our. Uh, our Facebook uh, post telling everybody to come and join the chat room. So hopefully we'll see the rise in numbers here in the next uh, the next little bit. Um, the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Find all sorts of great stuff at Torah Resource, including a new feature, which is the library. you got to have a mo- library membership. You can get one for less than $8.50 a month. And uh, we're still making, we're making some good changes constantly uh, to – to tour resource right now so check it all out and uh it's also brought to you by yeshuashirts.com and uh really you know they don't help produce the show all they do is uh deck us out in yeshua shirt gear uh but i have to say that i've you know that's a good thing for them because uh we keep talking about them and and uh yeah basically uh, their their products help start conversations. It's really what they do. You know, you got Yeshua. I, I constantly have people say, "What does that mean? What does that say?" Oh, are you, are you Jewish? What's the Hebrew wording? Which uh, opens up all sorts of uh, good conversations. So anyway. yeah, I've been in you know in the grocery store. You know, yeah. I've got a Yeshua shirt. Someone's like, "Hey, what? That looks like Hebrew." Or you know, you could tell they go to like a Christian church or something. And uh, yeah, that's cool. So we got, uh, we, we just got a message. Ooh, we just got a message on our phone line. That's exciting. Oh. That is exciting. 
We always love getting messages from people, so go ahead and leave us a message, 253-465-3205. I'll give it to you one more time. Get your pen and your piece of paper ready. It's 253-465-3205. Got a cough. Hang on. Okay, so um, we got a good email this last week. I, I, anything else to address before we ju- just jump right in? No, no. I'm okay. ready. Good. Uh, so we got an email from somebody saying, hey, really liked the uh, the teaser, the, the Passover teaser. For those who don't know, uh, every year we do a Passover uh, uh, special. Just like we do a Christmas special every year, we do a Passover special every year. Well, this year, normally what we do is we bring my father on. My father holds to a uh, what Dr. Brandt Petrie has termed the Passover hypothesis. And uh, so we'll use that term because I like that term. Uh, my father uh, put forward a, a chronology of the, of the passion back in 2008. And uh, it's really a collage. It's really a collection, really, of, of uh, various scholars' ideas uh, throughout the years, which now has become the Passover hypothesis. Uh, Dr. Brant Petrie, who is a Roman Catholic, uh, but a very good scholar nonetheless, uh, and I shouldn't say, I mean, you know, everybody's got their own ideas, but, uh, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a very good scholar. He teaches New Testament at Notre Dame, uh, and he's, uh, he's written some really very good books. Uh, one of the most recent is... Dun, dun, dun. This one right here, which I'm using for my uh, thesis. Did uh, you get that autograph, dude? Yes, I did. Um, okay, so he's he even autographs books. Two uh, Caleb, God bless thing. your study, Brant. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, for those listening and who can't see this on the uh, on on the screen, this book is a 517 page work. Uh, that he did called Jesus in the Last Supper. Anyway, all this to say that uh, this year uh, he holds to the to the Passover hypothesis just like I do, just like my father does. And uh, so this year, Dr. Petrie's going to— on the fence about— No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just a little kidding. Uh, funny. Uh, Dr. Petrie's coming on the show this year for our uh, Passover special. Yeah, it's going to be really, really a, a great show, and we're very excited for it. So first of all, if you have any questions about the uh, the Passover— uh, narrative in terms of the Last Supper, the chronology, any of those kind of things, uh, go ahead and send them to us because they might just uh, be asked to Dr. Petrie on air when we do record that special. I am I am so excited about uh, Dr. Petrie coming on, being willing to to uh, endure with <laughs> us. Yeah. Uh, but here here's the side: we we are trying to uphold the value of important ideas. Yes. And and in so doing, we are transcending identity politics, right? We're, and religious uh, identity politics because that's, it, it, with all its imperfections, mm-hmm. one thing we have from the SBL and even American Academy of Religion is um, you, there are good scholars in those bunches. Mm-hmm. And um, as we grow in discernment, we can learn from people who, uh, in other social situations, we might not ever entertain their ideas. We might not even know they exist. We might not. Uh, we might let a label prevent us from hearing the idea. Um, and because there are so many ideas in the world right now, 
and so much noise out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are thankful to the Lord for guiding our path at Torah Resource to uh, to continue our learning curve, our growth and development as disciples, our sharpening of our ideas. And um, it's clear that uh, part of that path is interacting with other believers that have different, at present moment, have uh, different convictions in terms of the what the body of Christ looks like, etc., and authority. But what we we there is this kind of carved out space in in these academic uh, forums where people are there because of the content of their idea and their argument, not because of what political or religious label uh, they can be ca- uh, classified into. So I'm very thankful. Uh, that Dr. Petrie is willing to uh, come and, and and share what we think are really great ideas that need to be heard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the interesting thing about Dr. Petrie is that uh, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to try to pinpoint him as a Roman Catholic by reading his book, except for maybe one sentence that he has at the end of one of his chapters. Um, but besides that, you know, he's, he's really doing uh, – as you know, he's a scholar, so he's doing great scholarly work. You know, there's, there's uh, the more I study the Last Supper and the, and the Eucharist, uh, the more I realize that there are some just dynamite uh, scholars in, uh, all over the spectrum. You know, uh, all, everywhere from Baptists through Roman ca- Catholics. You know, and of course because of the centrality of the Eucharist within uh, Catholicism, there have been a lot of really good Catholic scholars who have written on on uh, this subject. Anyway, so all that to say, if you have uh, questions for Dr. Petrie, please send them in. Uh, Hag at TorahResource.com. You can send them there. But uh, somebody asked if we would uh, continue to give little teasers about uh, this. And so one of the things that I wanted to do, there's there's two different ways that we could go with this. I think we'll do chronologies today. Basically, um, there's these are just little teasers for everybody out there to try to uh, kind of get your juices flowing for our, our Passover special that we'll, we'll do uh, I, I believe it'll air the week of Passover. Um, and so basically, uh, there's been a couple of questions, things that are uh, easily discussed and easily kind of uh, taken away. Um, but I think, and we'll continue each week to kind of uh, address some of those all the way up until uh, the show with Dr. Petrie. So I think that it would be important for us to kind of uh, address the four major hypotheses uh, when it comes to the, uh, the, the passion chronology, okay? And so that when we talk about these things, hopefully uh, our listening audience will have a better understanding about what we're talking about. Um, so basically there are four, and I'll just launch into this unless you want to say anything else. No, go ahead. Okay, so basically there are four major hypotheses, uh, and they're laid out mainly by, I pulled this from, um, this information mainly from Joachim Jeremias, who's uh, done what I would consider like the definitive rock work on. I, I shouldn't say that it's not definitive. He's just he's written a book that everybody references. It's kind of the go-to, um, and it's called Jesus and the Last Supper. And then um, also Dr. Petrie's book, which I just uh, told you about. Um, so number one, uh, Joachim Jeremiah cites three main scholarly views that are taken in terms of the chronology. Number one is the Johannian hypothesis. And that is that John's account is correct and Yeshua and his disciples were not eating a Passover meal. So I'll kind of dive into this a little bit. The way that this works, as we, as most of our listeners probably already understand, 
The Passover meal was uh, the lamb was supposed to be slaughtered on the 14th of Nisan, right? So the uh, it's slaughtered, the blood is thrown on the altar, the carcass is dressed, and then given back to the sacrificer. Uh, because of the numbers that came into uh, into Jerusalem during the Passover festival, they would then take that out of the temple. They would roast it uh, in on their own fire somewhere, and then they'd eat it. So they would sacrifice the animals from twelve thirty until about five or six o'clock in the evening uh, on the fourteenth of Nisan, and then the fifteenth of Nisan, as soon as the sun set on the on that night, it became the fifteenth of Nisan. The fifteenth is the festival Sabbath. Okay. And so in John, like in John, here, let's turn to one of the passages. This is, uh, this is why people would say that John is correct. Uh, John uh, 18.28, for instance. Well, there. wait a minute. Can I just interrupt there? Yes, of course. When you talk about that John is correct, you, you're not suggesting that John is at odds with the synoptics. What you're saying is that there are people out there that pit John's chronology as different than the synoptics. Okay, well, right? it, 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 there's two, there's multiple thoughts on this. Number okay. one, there are scholars who say that there's two traditions, which means one is wrong and one is right, and so they'll take John's account as being right because he, they say that he was a firsthand witness. There are other scholars who say, no, the word of God is inerrant, and therefore everything's right. However, uh, something else is going on in the synoptics. They're later, so they're using different terminology or something. Uh, and they, they don't really know how to deal with it. And then there's other scholars who, and then there's people like in the, uh, so predominantly in the Hebrew roots and Messianic movements, you have, uh, you have people holding to the Johannine chronology. And the way that people like Zach Bauer and or, um, you know, I'm not really sure how Lex tries to deal with it. And I know that he's still studying Lex Myers. Uh, uh, I know he's still studying uh, this as well. But, uh, for instance, Zach Bauer, the way that he deals with uh, John being correct. And basically what they're saying is, is that Yeshua and his disciples ate the, the Last Supper on Nisan 13. And that it wasn't a Passover meal. There was no Passover lamb. It was just a love meal. And, and basically Yeshua is saying goodbye because he's about to die. And so then he, they celebrate that meal. Night falls. It becomes the 14th of Nisan, the day that the Passover lambs are sacrificed. And then you have passages like this in John eighteen twenty eight that says, Then they led Yeshua from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. This would be, according to this hypothesis, would be on the 14th of Nisan. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters or the praetorium so that they would not become defiled, but could eat the Passover. So because of passages like this, they, uh, they are saying, okay, well, th this place is uh, this event on Nisan 14, which means that they ate their meal on the 13th. So uh, ways that people like Zach Bauer try to get a around, um, <laughs> try to get around the synoptics, which say that, uh, you know, Yeshua tells his disciples to go in. And then he says, uh, it, it says it was the first day of unleavened bread, the day the Passover lambs were sacrificed or the day the Pascha was sac sacrificed. So ways that they get around that is that they will say things like, um, here, I'll read one of these, Matthew uh, 26, 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Yeshua and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you the, to eat the Passover? 
and Mark 14, 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they were sacrificing the Passover lambs, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you the Passover sacrifice or, the, or to eat the Passover? So the, the, it seems as though you have a contradiction. So people like Zach Bauer and others will say, well, the, the day that the Passover lambs were sacrificed is just a general term. It's like Christmas. Oh, it's Christmas. Well, it's not really Christmas. It's the Christmas season, right? It might be three days before Christmas, but you can say it's Christmas. The problem that I see with that, and, I, and we'll we'll move on here. Uh, in just we won't go through all the chronologies. We'll just go through John right now. Um, the the biggest problem that you see with this idea that the day the Passover lambs are sacrificed, being a general term, uh, referencing a general time frame is that you have no evidence whatsoever in any first century witness, whether biblical or non-biblical, that refers to the 13th day of Nisan or a general time frame as the day the Passover lambs were sacrificed. Moreover, you have multiple witnesses that, that say the, day of unle- the first day of unleavened bread is the 14th of Nisan and never referred to as anything else. And you also have the uh, you also have uh, the day the Passover lambs are sacrificed being the fourteenth of Nisan. It's not a movable date. Uh, we have the chat room says Caleb. It is also John thirteen twenty nine that the disciples thought that Judas went to buy what was needed for the feast, which would make no sense if it was the Passover. Actually, it would make perfect sense um, because it's the fourteenth of Nisan, right? So in John 13, 29, uh, and I, in my thesis, I've already argued this point. It took me about three pages to argue it. Uh, the, the point is, is that it's not, it's not the 15th yet. Right? So was this a teaser? <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that's the, that's the, that's the John hypothesis. Okay. The John hypothesis is that, uh, is that John is right and the synoptics are wrong. And basically what you have going on here, here's the teaser, is that it looks like you, and just like uh, PJ in the in the chat room has mentioned, you know, it looks like we have significant contradictions, right? That's what it looks like. And so the question obviously has to be, how do, if we believe in the inerrancy of scripture, how is it that these line up? That's the question. Good enough? Yeah. So Sorry, we're, we're going to keep, we're going to, this, this conversation is going to yeah, we'll keep going gonna on. spiral. We're going to come back and touch on it again and go deeper. Yeah. Well, next week, what we'll do is we'll touch on the synoptic hypothesis, which is that the synoptics are right. And John is wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Uh, PJ, I, you can private message me. I'll send you a, I, I'll send you a piece out of, out of my, uh, I'll, I'll send you what I've written on this already. It's uh yeah. Anyway, uh, we can we can we can chat via email. Um, okay, so let's move on. As many people know, in show one hundred and sixty, we discussed um, a an article titled "Why Jews Don't Believe in Jesus." I think most people remember that uh, we had problems even with the uh, even with the title, right? Uh oh, Rob's looking for something. Go ahead. Keep talking. I'm grab, grabbing a book. Um, and so in this uh, in this article, they try to list several things. It's obviously not written for scholars. It's written, uh, obviously, for the layperson. And I would say, <laughs> yes, we did talk about this before. Um, 
so uh, I would say that uh, that it was actually quite. Uh, um, I, I think most people who listen to, the, to uh, most of our regular listeners would probably be able to refute a lot of what was going on in in that article. Um, however, that's not to discount it. In fact, that's why we talked about it. So uh, one of the things that we ne- we didn't get to was the suffering servant or Isaiah chapter fifty three. Um, now we can we can read a brief portion of this if we want to. Um, this is actually only a couple of paragraphs here, so I'll read this. This is from that same article. It's in your show notes again. Um, and interestingly, Tovia Singer, who we talked about last week, <clears throat> did uh, a a forty five minute response to a question about Isaiah fifty three in his in Manila in the Manila Philippines uh, just this month. Um, so uh, this article, let's start with the article, then we'll move to Singer and uh, and go from there. Uh, this article says Christianity claims that Isaiah chapter 53 refers to Jesus as the suffering servant. In, actu- in actuality, Isaiah 53 directly follows the theme of chapter 52, describing the exile and redemption of the Jewish people. The prophecies are written in the singular form because the Jews, that is Israel, are regarded as one unit. Throughout Jewish scripture, Israel is repeatedly called in the singular, the servant of God. See Isaiah 43, 8. In fact, Isaiah states no less than 11 times in the chapters prior to 53 that the servant of God is Israel. That's actually true. When read correctly, Isaiah 53 clearly and ironically refers to the Jewish people being bruised, crushed, and as sheep brought to slaughter at the hands of the nations of the world. These descriptions are used throughout Jewish scripture to graphically describe the suffering of the Jewish people. See Psalm 44. Isaiah 53 concludes that when the Jewish people are redeemed, the nations will recognize and accept responsibility for the inordinate suffering and death of the Jews. So, okay, this is this is the um, now classic go-to for uh, explaining Isaiah 53. It should be noted, first and foremost, that uh, <laughs> this was not always the go-to response to Isaiah 53 amongst Judaism. In fact, most of the sages uh, do not say that this is Israel. They say quite the contrary. Uh, So it's interesting that only, I shouldn't say modern, because uh, the shift began right about Rambam, which what, Rambam was 13th century, 12th century? Somebody help me out. Rambam was 11th century. 11th century, okay. Um, so 11th century is when you start to see the change. Um, okay, so I actually but need... Great, but, it, but it's, yeah, there is a transition over time from... <clears throat> well, as we see, as we dive in, are we? do we have clips we're listening to? We do have some clips from Singer. Oh. But if you'd like to address something <clears throat> first, hang on. I'm going to see if my headphones will actually reach over to my bookshelf real quick. Uh, you want some... Want some... Uh, here we go. Oh, I guess I will uh, wait for Caleb. There you go. Okay, that's it. Okay. <laughs> go. Oh, we, what we're doing is talking about, um, I just had sketched out some notes, but I, some of them were in response to the, the audio clips I think we're going to hear. Yeah, so I only have four audio clips today, but I think that they will uh, <clears throat> certainly uh, but the main, here's keep the us main busy. Point. Here's the main point. The main point is you, you might hear it say, Oh, Isaiah 53 refers to the Jewish people. 
<laughs> the main point, the main answer to that is... No, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> there's a complex history in rabbinic world itself yeah. from the time of the uh, Talmud, Jerusalem, Babylonian Talmud, on up to today that interprets it in very different ways. It, it's, it's associated with uh, a Messiah figure in rabbinic literature. It's associated with Moses at times, with Elijah, so uh, Rabbi Akiva, who, remember, suffered a martyr's death, according to the Babylonian Talmud, which is a, a contrary gospel. It's like they're trying to give a new centerpiece of the person suffering for the faith to displace the gospel, in my view. Um, but, we, and then, but then, by the Middle Ages, like Caleb's talking about, you do see an increase of it being, no, it's the people of Israel, and a, and a distancing from this idea that it's uh, individual, yeah. Messiah figure. Um, but one thing that we'll see with, with Singer, who's being disingenuous by just saying it's the Jewish people, is that he's, he's, he needs to come to terms with his own tradition. Uh, uh, because, obviously, he's going against what's in the Talmud and many uh, texts such as the Zohar that are saying as sacred in parts of uh, sects of Judaism that are more committed to halakhically probably than he is and, and, and live in greater stringency to uh, purity standards and things like that. And so I, and this is not a, uh, on those fronts, it's not a Jew-Gentile question. It's a Jew, it's, it's an Orthodox Jew slash um, fundamentalist Jew argument. Uh, so, but it's a straw man for him to try to project. It, it's almost as if he thinks that we're stupid. You well, know, that we're, uh, but finally, the last one is that even Menachem Schneerson was, uh, Isaiah 53 was applied to him uh, during after his stroke and subsequent death. So th this this don't let anybody give get any attraction with you uh, saying, oh, Isaiah 53 talks about is only about Israel. Well, not only that, but the, the thing about Singer, and you know, I'm I don't want to uh, attack Singer uh, unfoundably by any means, but. Um, you know, Singer went to Yeshiva University. He knows his Hebrew very well. And cool. yeah, he knows his Hebrew well. He, uh, um, you know, he's, he grew up speaking Hebrew and, uh, some of what he says is obviously not true. Even to someone like me who doesn't know my Hebrew very well, I know that there's multiple things going on. So I, I almost wondered this this week as I listened to uh, when we get to the fourth clip here, the last clip. I think that uh, it'll you'll sh I'll show you what I'm talking about. But I almost wondered if you know the rabbis say that uh, that uh, uh, is it permissible? You know they're talking about lying. There's this whole thing in the Talmud about lying. Are, is it permissible to lie? And my father brought this up too to me. And uh, the their response is a bride is is always beautiful, right? In other words. On a wedding day, on a, on a bride's wedding day, you never tell a bride, oh, you're ugly. That's not right. So is it okay to lie? And even if the bride is ugly, is it okay to say that she's beautiful? Of course, because she's beautiful in someone's eyes, right? She's beautiful in her husband's eyes, in the, in the man who's marrying her, right? Um, so I want to, and they basically go on to say it's okay to, to lie, to save a life. So truth, truth is defined as a, as uh, statements that function a religious purpose. In yes. other words, any statement that supports and affirms a positive religious goal is considered truth. 
And this, the book that really gets in on a side note, extended side note, that uh, Mark Shapira, he, Mark B, M-A-R-C, B Shapira, with an A at the end, wrote a book, wrote a couple of books. Uh, and he's an Orthodox Jew, but he's a scholar. He wrote, uh, what's the one, what's the latest one? Um, the immu- Changing the Immutable, mm-hmm. in which he shows how Orthodox Judaism redacts its own history I mean, the, the easy-to-remember one is the pic, they found pictures of Schneerson, Chabad did, when he was a young man, but he wasn't wearing a kippah. So when they publish the picture, they, they have an artist go and paint a kippah on there so it looks like he's wearing a kippah. So, they, so that is a—but that's not seen as a, um, a fake news. That's seen as promoting religious value, and therefore it's a, it's a, it's a statement or communication— shaped to promote positive religious value and therefore it's called truth yeah uh so so, so but my, my, my is a good book for that my whole point here is that i i almost wonder because i don't want to i don't want to assume that uh that that singer is just boldly lying you know I, that's not what i want to i don't want to assume that um so i wonder if maybe he thinks that because <laughs> Because he's speaking to, because he's saving a life, in other words, uh, that he's able to not, to bend the truth and leave out pertinent facts that would speak to what he's saying. I don't, I don't know, I don't know how else you would, I don't know how, yeah, I don't know how else to rationalize what he's saying because it's clearly not, okay, let's get to it, um, no, no, wait. We were talking was specifically with Isaiah fifty three and the people of Israel, right? That's or are you I'm, talking I'm just ta- general ta- broad brush? I'm talking about a very. I mean, there's a specific clip that I got here where I I don't know how to reconcile what he's saying without thinking that he's, you know, I'm trying to rationalize without putting, without coming out and saying this guy is, you know, he's he's just straight up lying. I don't know how else to rationalize what he's saying. Because it's it's clearly not true. But we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, let's listen to some of what uh, S- Singer has to say. Now, he's going to take the same approach as this uh, article that we, we just read this short little piece. He's going to take the same approach. Let's listen, let's listen to what he sa- says here. Isaiah 53, you suggest that God is speaking. It can't be. Why? Because 53, somebody's talking or people are talking. And they're saying, we have sinned. And surely he carried our transgressions. Did God sin? No way in the world, right? So God is not speaking. You say, Isaiah is speaking. Did Isaiah do these things? No. This is a narrative. This is very critical. So first thing is, you have to know who are the speakers. And if you land in a chapter, you know, nine-tenths through a book, and we don't know who's talking, it's very unlikely you're able to figure out what is being conveyed in the chapter. We're going to do it together, okay? Those that are speaking in this chapter are the Gentile kings of nations. How do you know? Because it says it. In Isaiah 52, verse 15, and those of you who have a Bible, please read it for yourself. It says there that he will cast down many nations before him. Kings will go, King, for what they will see, kings will be astonished because what they will see is like nothing they ever heard, and what they will witness is like nothing they had ever considered. Okay, 
here's just a, 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 a word of caution for anyone who ever hears anything that uh, Shapira says, or, or uh, I'm sorry, Singer, Singer, uh, Singer says, um, is that anytime he quotes scripture, even when he tells you to go look at it for yourself, go look at it for yourself. Because often uh, he's either accidentally misquoted it or uh, he's he's taking a very interesting twist on on translation. Um, I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> um, okay. Do, do you want to start? Well, this is uh, the Who Has Believed Our Report is, is was what he's setting up here. Right? He's setting up Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And his argument is that the we talking are these kings of the earth, non that are Gentile kings of the earth, that have witnessed something that that, that, that they uh, have never imagined before. That's his argument. Yeah, and actually, interestingly, he says it says that they're speaking, but it doesn't, right? In 52, in 52 yeah. 15, it says, Thus he will uh, sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. And then we go... If, sh- they've, shut their, if they've shut their mouths, then why are they speaking? I guess that's, that's a basic question you could ask. Um. Right. Yeah. So what he's trying. Yeah, exactly. What he's trying to say is that he is that uh, then they the nations then take over. Take over the uh, the the narrative. So now they're the ones speaking. Well, here and here's the problem with that. The very last verse of Isaiah 52, it says um, uh, they will witness something announced to them. They will understand the asher lo shamu, and that which they did not hear, hit bonanu. They will understand. So when, but the word hearing is in the very next verse, fifty-three one. Mi Who who has believed our report? So the the idea is that the 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 kings have heard something. And they, or that they, wait, that they understand something they've never heard. But the contrast with 53.1 is that there's a message going out. And, and it has to do with that God is doing it. To whom has the, the, the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, it's the, the reason this verse 53.1 has such traction in the Gospels is because it's pointing to the fact that God is the one who's who's opening hearts. God is doing something in a world where not everybody understands. There's going to be people that hear it and believe and people that don't believe. Um, I think he's, he's pushing this, this idea. First of all, he says his narrative. No, this is poetry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who's believed a report? To whom is the arm of the... I mean, it's, this is a giant poem full of rich imagery and parallelism. And it's a, pro- it's a prophecy. Um, one other comment is that if you look at Isaiah 53, in my my research, it looks like there's one, two, three, four, five, seven major times in the apostolic writings where Isaiah 53 is quoted. 
referring to Yeshua. It's in Matthew, it's in Luke, it's in John, so it's across the Gospels. Mm-hmm. It's in Acts, which goes with Luke. It's in Romans and in First Peter. So it's in Pauline preaching. It's in Petrine uh, pe- uh, preaching. It's in John as well as Matthew as well in, and in Luke Acts. And they're all reading Isaiah 53 as it's the as this is the fulfillment of the gospel. What's the core claim of the gospel? That God is going to draw people a people unto Himself by giving them faith in his son hmm. by opening their eyes to his son. And that that's going to hit not every, that not everybody's going to believe and that there's going to be suffering uh, because of it. That That's alignment with, with the, with messianic suffering. You know, though, in other words, the, his followers are going to be persecuted uh, because they cling to his name. Um, and that, that it's referring to Yeshua. So, um, and this is the first inner, uh, first in history. If we just use our chronological uh, method, this is a what we have is a burst in the first century. We have a burst of different groups all around Yeshua, different uh, teachers, diverse from one another, as we see in the distribution in the apostolic writings, a flowering of an interpretation that is all in agreement. They're all in agreement on what this means. They're all giving their life and passionately going out to the world with this message even though they're persecuted. And that's the first time in Jewish history that this verse has been unpacked. We, we, we can't go, it's not like we can go to other places and see where this is an act, uh, this was a prophecy of what God was going to do in the first century. Uh, and it's clear that that's what it is. What we see later downstream, as we go along chronologically, we see the rabbis respond to it now, right? Now the... the the, the Christian, if we want to call it that, the apostolic claim to the meaning of Isaiah 53 in the first century changes, it changes the game. Because then those groups that are committed to a biblical Hebrew uh, kind of orientation to their faith now have to come up with counter-midrash, right? They have, to, they have to say, wow, I either accept it or I have to create a new meaning and argue for a new meaning. That's not the position that the disciples are in. Disciples are saying, this is what it is, and this is, and this is all it is. Later, rabbis are saying, well, well, they even let it slip in the Babylonian Talmud that they do associate it with the Messianic figure. But also, well, it can be Moses, it could be Rabbi Akiva. Nowhere, it, it's, it's a minority opinion to say it's people of Israel, generally. And, but, the, but that's not the only problem. If we look at Isaiah 53, it says, we like sheep have gone astray, and that we have transgressions, right, and sins. The rabbis don't see Gentiles as sheep. They're, other, they're unclean animals. So for Singer to hold that these are the voices of Gentiles mm. who are calling themselves sheeps that have gone astray, no. The, the stray sheep is an image of of Israel. It's an image of Israel in the apostolic writings, right? Lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's in the Psalm, the very last verse, I think of Psalm 119, as I have strayed like a sheep. It's someone who longs for to walk in the Torah, but sees themselves as a sinner. This, this idea that somehow singer can have that this is the nations of the world talking on one hand, but that they're uh, sheep that have gone astray and have, have sinned, doesn't fit. Yeah. 
because the conviction here is not, oh, we've, do, we've, we've uh, transgressed the laws of Noah. Oh, we're like sheep. No, no, it just doesn't fit. Uh, um, and again, it's just, to me, it's disingenuous. It's somewhat, he, he, he's got his couple, you know, notes he knows, drum licks or notes he knows on his trumpet, but uh, he's got, yeah. he's got, he's got a couple of fills that he keeps doing yeah, on the he's drums. Got, he's got three notes. <laughs> beep, beep, beep. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's listen to Let's listen to another one, uh, by, by singer. Here we go. Uh, yeah. The question now, the big, big, big question, the 50, 60, who is it speaking about? And this is where we encounter. It's not really a problem, but it doesn't say, never says the word Messiah, anything in there. Never. No. So then how do we know? We do know. Why? Because it's, it's God's servant. It's talking about God's servant. The Gentile kings and nations are surprised of God's servants. So what's the obvious question? Who is this servant? We, how do we know the answer? Everything is at stake, my sister. We want to know, what does Isaiah think? Who is God's servant? I want you to open up Isaiah 41, verse 8. Okay, I should tell you, everybody, I... I uh... I edited this. I edited out a, a lot of his uh, trying to get people to raise their hands to read verses. So that's why it sounds highly edited. Nine. Isaiah 44, verse 1. Isaiah 44, verse 21. Just find that verse. Who else has a Bible? Raise your hand. You do. I want you to open up Isaiah 45, verse 4. I want you to open up to Isaiah 49, verse 3. Now, what we're doing is you see, we're creeping up to Isaiah 53, and I'm going to show you every place where the servant is mentioned. Watch this. I'm going to show you every place where the servant is mentioned. Well, first of all, uh, let's look at what he did He did uh, bring up. Isaiah 41, 8 through 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, and you said to, and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Isaiah 44, 1, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. Uh, the list goes on, okay? So he has uh, several more passages here. He says, everywhere, I'm going to show you everywhere that my servant is mentioned. Well, that's uh, not true. In fact, he left out a significant portion of the places that the servant is mentioned in Isaiah. And why? Because there's two different entities that are referred to as his servant. Um, and, of course, I believe the other entity uh, referred to as the servant would be the Messiah. Um, a perfect example of this would be Isaiah 43. Uh, but thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by, your, uh, by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, so on and so forth. Um... Are you with me on this, uh, Rob? Take over for a second while I look for this passage. Oh, well, I, I don't know exactly where you're going, but you're just giving context to the my servant yes, imagery, correct. right? Yes. Um, and that my servant, he wants to say that my servant always means the people of Israel. Correct. Right? And that there's no other way to interpret it. Well, again, even if even if we want to entertain that thought, He's going against the grain of his own literary tradition, his own. And, and if he's truly orthodox, then he's uh, views the Talmud with probably as a sacred text, right? And he so he's he's going against the grain of his own tradition. 
Um, because his, you know. Let's talk about that for a few seconds, actually. Hang on. So uh, let's reference some rabbinic sources, okay? Uh, you bring up the uh, Talmud Sanhedrin 98b, the Messiah. What is his name? The rabbis say, the leprous one. Those of the house of rabbis say, the sick one. As it is said, surely he has borne our sickness, etc. Which is a reference, obviously, to Isaiah 53. And, and also earlier in the Talmud, you have, for anyone who... who for Torah scholars, basically, that that God brings suffering on Torah scholars to refine them, uh, and so it's not even then. You have Talmudic, rabbinic; uh, these are authorities, uh, uh, rabbinic authorities whose <laughs> whose uh, legend and authority far surpasses Rabbi Singer's, um, and they're saying. They're giving completely different uh, yeah, they're, 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 interpretations of this passage. They're disagreeing with each other. Uh, here's another one. Midrash uh, Rabbah on Ruth 2.14. Another explanation of Ruth 2.14, that is. He is speaking of the King Messiah. Come hither, right. draw near to uh, the throne, and eat of the bread, that is, the bread of the kingdom, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. This refers to the chastisements, as it is said, but he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Obviously a reference to Isaiah 53 again. Um, I got a couple more here. You want me to keep going? No, that's fine. That, that's, that's good. Okay. Um, so basically the point here is that, that uh, Isaiah continues to talk about two, two different entities as the servant. Let's listen to, oh, and this one is one that uh, I'm sure Rob will have fun with. The Goyim, the nations of the world are speaking they say the last three words, if you have it in Lush and Kodesh in Hebrew, it, the nations say, Mipesha Ami Negalamo. What does that mean? For the transgress, Mipesha, as a result of the iniquities of my people, Negalamo, they, the Jews, were stricken. They suffered. What does that mean? It's very simple. When the Nazis persecuted the Jews, when the Germans persecuted the Jews, who suffered? The Jews did. We suffered as a result of the bad behavior of the world's nations. Now, the word lamo means them in Hebrew. If you don't know Hebrew, how do you say him? Singular, lo. Lo is him, lamo is them. So the text says, for the transgressions of my people, they were stricken, meaning the Jews. Now, your new international version that you have at home, or King James, or whatever one you use, you know what they do? They can't leave it. You wouldn't believe what I'm going to say. You'll look it up for yourself. They actually change it. It says, for the transgressions of my people, they were stricken, and your Christian translations changed to he was stricken. The King James plays a game and says, to, because of the, our transgressions, the, the, the iniquity went there too. Just ambiguous. How do you change the word of God? How do you make them into him? Okay, and this is what I'm talking about here in terms of, wow. in terms of, of uh, Singer not being honest. This is... <laughs> It's kind of amazing what he's done here because now he's saying that the, the Christian translators are the ones who have lied, um, but clearly he's not being honest with the Hebrew here. In fact, uh, so t talk about Lamo a little bit. Well, so his point is this, is the very last word in Isaiah 53, 8, Lamo, uh, it, has, it, it can actually mean two things, to him or to them. It's a, it is a, uh, it might be hard to get your mind around how that could be, but that's the fact of the matter. 
and and we know this. It's first of all, it's an archaic usage. Um, the word mo is functions kind of strangely. It's the same word as in mi kamocha, right? Who is like you, or you shall love, uh, you know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this word mo is used, it can take a preposition, lamed, lamo, kamo, uh, etc. Um, but it, it is clear, we have places in the scripture where lamo, in my view, is, is clearly singular. Yeah. Um, and there are a handful of these. And, and it's, first of all, the word isn't used that much uh, anyway. But um, I, thought I, had, I thought I had pulled those, and I don't see where I have them anymore. Um, well, but lamo can mean, uh, even in Isaiah, wasn't there one in Isaiah? Let me, I'll see if I can pull it up. So, so while you do that, you know, it's funny that he says that the Christian translators have changed this. Um, but now he says that the, uh, that the nations, when the nations sin, it hurts the Jewish people. This is his interpretation, right? And uh, what's interesting is that I'm sure that he uh, is, is familiar with the art scroll, right? Um, and Art Scroll does a lot of very good. Uh, they put together some amazing-looking books. This from their uh, their Isaiah commentary, and they have the they have the Hebrew here. They have uh, the, the English, and then they have all of the commentary from from the various rabbis. And so listen how they translated this passage in Isaiah fifty three eight. For he had been cut away. Notice also that before Lamo comes into play. It's all singulars. So what, what Singer wants to do is he wants to say that it's all singular, 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 and then right here, it's plural. Yeah, them, yeah. For some yeah. reason, he, Isaiah has it all singular up until this one word becomes plural. Um, so this is what the art scroll says. For he had been cut away from the land of the living. My people's sin brought the affliction upon them. So Singer is trying to say that it's the Gentiles who's bringing the affliction onto the Jewish people. The art scroll, however, has trouble with this as well, because even though they take Singer's uh, Singer's plural on Lamo at the end of the verse, they still don't really know how to to translate it right. Here's here's some examples of Lamo for back to just uh, let's look at biblical examples. How Go come Singer doesn't take his audience to Genesis nine? 26 and 27. This is the, uh, if you remember the story of Noah, this is after Noah's drunkenness, etc. And he comes out. Um, Noah said, uh, Baruch Adonai Elohei Shem, blessed is Adonai, the God of Shem. Vihi kena'an evid lamo. May Canaan be his slave. Evid lamo. Not their slave. To Shem. It's talking about Shem. And then it goes on, verse 27, Genesis 9, 27. Um, Elohim le-yafet, that's may, may Elohim enlarge uh, Japheth. Uh, it's, it's, there's a wordplay here, Yafet and Yaft. Um, and he may dwell uh, in the tents of Shem. And then he repeats the same thing again. May Canaan be his servant. His slave, Lamo here. Uh, 
to me, I, I don't understand how you could read it any other way. Here's a, if we want to go to Isaiah, here's an example from Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 40, let's see, where is it? <clears throat> Isaiah 44, 15. It's talking about the man who, who cuts down a tree, right? Um, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. Then it says at the end, it says, um, Af Yifal El. He even, um, uh, Yifal, he makes an El. Vayishtahu. He, makes a, he, he makes a God. Yeah. He makes a God <clears throat> and he bows down. Asahu, he makes it Fesel, which is an, another word for idol. Vayisgad uh, Lamo. And bows down to worship it, worships Lamo, it, talking about the Pesel and the L that he just formed. Um, so it's totally disingenuous. And then there's there's a, a handful in Job, if you want to just dive into this, where it's it, <laughs> there's no other way to read it from the context uh, other than uh, meaning to him or mm. for him or to it. So... Again, what he's doing, this is an example of a teacher who knows more than his audience in a way and then presents very selectively. Uh, he's skewing, the, this is what we call unjust weights and measures. He's, he's, he's like um, putting weights on one side of the thing, right? To make it... Uh, yeah, to make it lean his way. To make it lean his way. Yeah. And, and you're, the sad thing here is you have countless people hearing his talks, buying his books, buying his his audio recordings or whatever, supporting him. And it sounds real they're good, zealous, doesn't it? They're zealous yeah. for, for this against their Christians who have deceived and covered up this truth of God's word. And now he's trying to pit Christians against the word of God. Right. I mean, yeah. that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to wedge that out and, and shame on him. Shame on you, singer. Well, the 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 point continues. I mean, we could go back, and for those who uh, who would like uh, more rabbinical references from the Tanchuma and uh, the Sifre and uh, others, there are plenty of rabbinical references that uh, Isaiah fifty three is in fact talking about the Messiah, and you can find many of those references in my father's book, um, uh, the Messiah and the Tanakh. Uh, on his portion of Isaiah 52 and 53. <clears throat> I got one more clip from uh, Singer. You ready for it? Sure. So Isaiah 53 is a scheme that we find throughout the Jewish Bible. And that is when the true... I think he meant theme. He said scheme, but I think he, I think he was trying to say, say theme. Theme that we... Go ahead. Okay, I... It just sounds like he's he put a bunch of cotton balls in his cheeks when he talks from to me. <laughs> well, I I will give it to I I will give him credit where credit might be due. Uh, over in the Philippines, I've been there three times now. Over in the Philippines, it's hot and it's muggy, and what they do is they keep uh, these they keep air conditioners going all the time. And when you uh, when the air conditioners are going, they're really loud. And it makes audio almost impossible. And oh. so if you listen to any of the audio, even of my father or me over in the Philippines, we've had to basically try to take out all that noise, which makes it makes it, it a little affects the final. Yeah, it, yeah, it makes final. it it makes it a little muddy. So uh, and I can tell that I can tell that that's what they did here. Uh, 
anyone who works with audio can spot it when, when you've had to take out uh, background noise like that. So Isaiah 83 is a scheme that we find throughout the Jewish Bible, and that is when the true Messiah comes, the nations recognize their error. As it says in Jeremiah 16, verse 19, the Gentiles will come to the Jews and say, surely we've inherited lies and vanity where there is no truth. How can a man make unto himself God if they're not? Ask yourself an honest question. If we're wrong about Jesus, I mean, frankly, I mean, we're talking just here. If the Jews are wrong about the absolute most important subject in the world, Jesus, if we're wrong, why does every prophecy say that the Gentiles will come to the Jews and say, we made a mistake? It should say the Jews will come to the Christians and they will admit they made a mistake. I mean, this is a reasonable question. Oh why would 10 Gentiles grab the shirt of a Jew and say, now we know God is with you? Why? Why does it say, if we're wrong, I mean, should think, let's just try the thing too. The Jews are wrong. Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead. That means the Jews missed the boat completely on the singular most important issue this, of, of salvation. Go ahead. This, this is uh, craziness. I knew that this, uh, because, I knew this one would get you. I knew, I knew because, I'd get well, you here. Wait, what's he do? This reminds me of the article on Ace that we looked at a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Yeah. First of all, the Jews, it's a myth that the Jews rejected Jesus. That's a myth. Yeah. Some Jews rejected Jesus, and, and some Jews that rejected Jesus had religious power and authority, and they went on to, to create midrash and halakhic uh, standards that excluded any Jews that believed in Yeshua from being legitimate. And that tradition has endured for nearly, you know, 2,000 years, and now he's identifying those people as the real Jews, and any Jews that have come to faith in Yeshua, along with the other nations of the world that have come to faith in Yeshua, as apostate or, quote, Christian and, quote, non-Jews. Um, and it's, a, it's another uh, twisted representation of the facts of the matter. Well, beyond that, the, the portion... He sure is passionate. He's, he's delivering it with, with uh, great uh, passion. I, I, I'll give him that. Well, the, the, the passage that he quotes, the passages that he quotes, has to do with the Torah. Right? It has to do with the Gentiles coming to Torah. They'll grab the tzitzit of each, of each Jew and say, teach us. Right? Why? Because they're, they're following after Torah. You know, I told, I told the guys in the office here. Uh, Does he recognize that Yeshua is Jewish and the apostles are Jewish? If the... That it's a Jewish tech. The no, I remember last week. Last week we 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 heard him say that that uh, those those Jews were the unlearned Jews, so they didn't know anything. They 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 weren't, you know, they weren't the scholars. They were the they were the uh, the the Am Haaretz, right? The the people the people the common workers, people of the land. So I mean they couldn't know anything, right? That's I mean that was basically his point. I, I told the guys in the office here, honestly, if this is what the anti missionaries are putting up as they're like, I don't know where they hold Singer in terms of, you know, his level of ability in terms of anti missionary, but uh, if this is the best they got, I don't understand why we're losing people. Well, because people are Because people always, don't have you know. they don't they don't have they don't truly have the spirit of God, right? That's why we're losing people. Well, they're they're putting pleasing men against uh, ahead of pleasing God. Yeah. They want to be they want to see they want to give the rabbis power, and they want to give the rabbis power because they want to believe that God has ordained 
the rabbis to represent the word of God to people. And to try to honor that and respect that means they have to listen and accept an anti-gospel uh, interpretation of scripture. Um, and, you know, that's what we're up against. I mean, but that's it, no different now than it was in the first century. It doesn't take very much, though. I mean, you don't have to be a scholar, right? You don't have to have you don't have to have a huge amount of you don't have to have a huge library or anything like that to be able to to even look at various arguments of this and realize that what he's saying is not. It's just not he's not telling you the whole story. Right. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to have a seminary degree to be able to, to to look at these passages and say, wait, something's fishy here. He's not telling us the whole story. Every time Singer quotes scripture or uh, makes some kind of statement about uh, what a Bible passage says, it's suspect to me because he has misquoted right. so many times. It's ridiculous. Here, here's, here are some things to, to keep in mind <laughs> to understand his worldview. I, I would, you know, not having run these by him, uh, these are my guesses. That he believes that you that a Jew can't believe in Yeshua that that Jews uh, uh, that that's an oxymoron right oxymoron yeah Jews and Christians are very separate things um, plus the fact that he I'm imagining he's he practices an orth, orthodox halakhically defined lifestyle according to if, if he really graduated Yeshiva University if that's where he was ordained then that means he's an orthodox rabbi. Um, then he sees the halakha as the word of God. So that means that the, same, that the halakha, rabbinic law, on how commandments are to be kept and, not, and what, what um, disqualifies a commandment from, from being kept. In other words, like if you, you have to do A, B, or C, and you didn't do it according to halakha, therefore you didn't fulfill that commandment, and the obligation remains on you. Um, all those things are defined in the rabbinic world, according to Yeshiva University rabbinic standard, is the, quote, word, capital W, word of God. Mm. So when he talks about God's word and you can't change God's word, he's not talking about just the Tanakh. He's, uh, he would include in that the rabbinic, the corpus of rabbinic uh, halakhic rulings as well. And uh, so he's... he's uh, from an institutional position where he's been shaped, those commitments are going to color everything else that everything uh, that happens. And, and it can only be a work of the Holy Spirit to actually crack his heart open so that he would read the, yeah, the gospel great. and hear the gospel afresh. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If something needs to be revealed, right, then that means God has to be the one to reveal it. Uh, Paul, now, while Paul wasn't dealing with, he was just talking about Jews who had rejected the gospel in the first century, when he, in, is it in 1 Corinthians? He says there's a veil over their heart while they read the Tanakh. Right? Yeah. I mean, that, exactly. that, and that's just, and we have to understand that. That's not a reason for us to be angry with Singer or to uh, mistreat him. I, it seems like we're, we're trying to represent him accurately, and we're trying to say, look, you're not being... Uh, uh, genuine, you know, you, uh, we have we have clear reason. We've given multiple reasons why you are not being um, square with with the facts on the table, and it has the result of misleading people. Um, and uh, to to us, it's unacceptable. 
Yeah, it's exactly. Not, it, it's unacceptable. He wouldn't, uh, even if you were to try to make this scholarly, let's just forget that he's in a religious environment. Let's try to boil down his his arguments from a scholarly view. He would never, his paper would not be accepted, for example, SBL. No, of course People not. say you can't do that because the first thing they do is they'd look and they say, well, actually, there's a whole bunch of places in early rabbinic literature that uh, show this to be very different from you, uh, from what you're claiming the real meaning is. Um, and so you need to account. This is not attacking for you against Christians. This is attack on you, uh, between you and your own tradition. So there, there are already things that would start sorting out. So he finds popular audiences to 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 sell this, peddle his wares, uh, and uh, definitely not academic. Well, he find, yeah. The the interesting thing is is that he finds these audiences. Now, don't get me wrong. There are there. Are strong believers who are feisty over in the in the Philippines and Indonesia. There's no doubt about that. So I mean, he's not he's not talking to a group that is, you know, there are people in that audience that are not buying it. I can guarantee it. But there are also people over there uh like anywhere, like America, like anywhere who are hungry and and thirsty for for the truth. And somebody comes along who sounds real good, who speaks with authority, and guess what? They they follow they listen and I think that that's really where Singer, you know he he grabs people that way, mm -hmm. okay, and then uh, essentially it's uh, you know whether it's through him or through uh, other organizations anti missionary organizations, once they get the hooks in then they can draw them in then they can really draw them in because then they can go to, um, <laughs> yes I said hungry for truth. Uh, not hungry for mystery, hungry for mystery. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> um, I think once they get the hooks in, you know, then they can turn them towards rabbinic thought. And once they turn them to rabbinic thought, then then it's over. If you if you are going to take the rabbis as as on par with, uh, you know, it's it's like Catholicism, right? You know, if you're going to take the the Pope and the Magisterium as on par with what God's saying, basically they're the they're the mouthpiece of God. Well, I mean, then what they says go, it goes. What they say goes. It's the same with the, with rabbinic Judaism. Once you get a believer to, to and this is why you know the idea that uh, that somehow the rabbinic literature is divinely sanctioned it, in my mind is just it's such a slippery slope because once you go there, then why there they say that the that the that Yeshua is not the Messiah, that he's a heretic. So if they're right, if they're the mouthpiece of God, how far does it? How far can you go before you have to de deny the Messiah Himself? Yeah, the the point, Caleb, that he really hit strongly was how could Jews be wrong about the most important thing? Uh, again, is well, which Jews are wrong? It's not all Jews. So first of all, we have to remind him not all Jews have rejected Yeshua. Uh, secondarily, which Jews? would they be? Which Jews would be the ones that would be wrong? Well, those who have rejected him. Well, what is that? Well, those are the Jews who see the rabbinic literature as defining their identity. Um, and those are the Jews that have rejected Yeshua. The, one of the problems that this puts in front of for, uh, some within what we call Messianic Judaism today, those who are, and we've talked about these before, who are trying to see Yeshua in let's say the Zohar or in this, and they go back and they're trying to uphold rabbinic uh, traditional interpretations or commentary texts as showing, has been full of uh, demonstrations of who Yeshua is. 
there those people are going to be in kind of in a similar problem that singer is is in um ultimately you have to square with what the the trail text the trail of the text leads you and the 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 encoded kind of official position of rabbinic Judaism is that Jesus is not the Messiah, right? I mean, yeah. you, you, um, in order to, for a rabbinic Jew to embrace Yeshua, they have to, and they want to cling to the Talmud, they have to, and other rabbinic texts, they have to deny those texts from their own tradition. Yeah, exactly. And, and we know, you know, he came, uh, the, um, ordained rabbi, I've mentioned it before, third generation, land of Israel, uh, was a Talmud teacher in Jerusalem. He came and, and spent a few days here. Um, he, uh, he's also a Kohen, by the way, speaks Russian, fluent Hebrew and Russian, very little English. He was, he came to faith in Yeshua through reading a, a Hebrew translation of, of the Gospel of Matthew, it was just a beautiful story, but he ends up losing his teaching position. He gets kicked out of his community. He was a he was a teacher of the Talmud. So what? So you know, what we're seeing here is that you've got a deal breaker. There's a deal breaker built right into the middle of the rabbinic, the the strict Orthodox rabbinic world. And the deal breaker is Yeshua is not Messiah. And, and you can try to maybe say, well, there's this community, I'll hang out with this little community over there, and, and we do rabbinic, you know, we're rabbinic Jews, but we, you know, understand that. And, and maybe around the edges there's ways that communities can find pockets to live out their halakhic commitments, etc. But um, all in all, I mean, we, you, the, the, all, you just see what happens, you know, see what happens when you talk about Yeshua in those environments. And um, it's... Uh, not going to be um, acceptable. Well, you have you have you have Hasidic Orthodox Jews who believe that Schneerson is the Messiah, and some who uh, seem to lean like he's he's divine, right? And uh, and all oh, right, yeah. and and the and the uh, the other Orthodox non non Chabad uh, Jews who aren't believing in that Schneerson is the Messiah, they're not rejecting the the Chabad and saying, oh. You believe that Schneerson's the Messiah and he's a false Messiah? No, we, we reject you. They're not doing that. Or even, oh, you you seem to allude that, that Schneerson is divine or that he hasn't died. So we have to reject you now, just like we rejected the, the Christians. Well, it, that doesn't happen. There's something special about Yeshua and the disdain that the Jews, ha- the, you know, the, the Orthodox religious Jews have for him that's different than just uh, he's not the Messiah. And I think that it is that, you know, it is that the Lord has hardened their hearts against Yeshua. And it, it is the softening of the heart of the, of the Holy Spirit himself is the only thing that can bring them back to true faith in the Messiah, Yeshua. That's my, that's, that's my, my, my opinion. Okay. Well, I hope that this has been enlightening at least somewhat. Uh, we have s- some interesting uh, stuff that's been sent to us. I don't know if we're actually going to try to uh, uh, to, to touch on it next week or not. We're going to have to try to see uh, exactly um, how we would approach it. But people have asked us to talk about rabbinic theology, Jewish theology as opposed to Christian theology. 
we might have something that might be able to help us do that. Thanks to Lois, who sent uh, sent a uh, an article in. Um, but we might not be talking about that. We'll have to see. So if you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, if you have something that you think that we'd find interesting, please send us an email, com. Anything else you want to say before we go? Well, just to clarify on the, uh, uh, using theology, Jewish theology, those words together would be is a pretty new thing, right? I mean, that you're not going to find a word theology or any really close uh, word that would even translate as theology in the main body of rabbinic literature. Um, what you have is halakha, right? Yeah. You have halakha and agada. Halakha is our is instructions for keeping the commandments, right? How to how to how to do the how to keep the commandments so that you're reckoned as a covenant, uh, a faithful to the covenant. That's the halakha. And on the other hand, you have the agada is the storytelling, you know, that helps promote, you know, virtue and ethics and, you know, what really happened behind the scene between, you know, Hagar and Abraham and Sarah, you know, all the little, the the stories that are not in the scripture, but are told. Um, and they're very imaginative, of course. So, but um, in terms of hala, uh, in terms of theology, um, it, it is it more complex. So if we do talk about that, we always need to have that little caveat that we're, we could be easily accused of imposing a Christian ideological uh, frame upon um, yeah, onto. A, a different, something different altogether. And yeah. so we want to be uh, careful. You're right. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, don't forget, give us a call and uh, leave us a message, whether or not you like us or dislike us, hate us, love us. Uh, kind of agree, kind of sort of don't agree, it doesn't matter. And you can do that by calling 253-465-3205. I'll give it to you again. It's 253-465-3205. Remember to send in questions that you might have about the chronology so that we can ask Dr. Petrie about those questions when he comes on. That won't be until oh, about, what, six weeks from now? Uh, I think uh, Passover begins on April 10th. And so I think our Passover special will be on, I believe, the 12th. I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me on that. But uh, So you got some that time. That would be my birthday. There you go. There you go. Rob's birthday, too. All right. Until next time, send us uh, stuff to talk about. We love hearing from everybody. We hope that this conversation prepares you and uh, not only prepares you, but also glorifies our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.